0: Back to, back, to to back to Gin and Welcome back to Gin and Topic. If you've forgotten, I'm Sarah. And I'm Anya. And we drink gin. And we don't know anything. <laughs> but it's okay, because we've got a load more experts. We've got some really cool topics. And we're going to find out about them. Yeah, while drinking gin. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so, here we go. Well, who were we chatting to? Last week, yes. we frazzled your brain. I frazzled my brain, that's for sure. So this week, I've got you a little present. You got me a present? I have. I Go got on you a then. little what's present. what's my present? Your little present is, is Dr. Claire Sedgwick. Okay. Why is she my present? Because she is a, an honorary research fellow at the University of Nottingham mm-hmm. with a PhD in... Here comes your present. <laughs> feminist media studies. Oh, it is a present. <laughs> it is a present. That's more, that's, yeah, okay. This is more of my street. I can do this. I mean, I read quite a lot of feminist books. It is a True. pastime of mine and I like to engage with different forms of media that may be labeled feminist, but I don't know if I would be able to talk as much about you know theories behind it i can mm-hmm. quote you know male gaze and stuff the mm-hmm. basics mm-hmm. but i don't know if i know the ins and outs i just know i enjoy it i just enjoy the idea of being equal and all beings being oh, no. equal and i just think who wouldn't enjoy that and i also enjoy the recent discussion about female gaze that has emerged from bridgerton because god damn did that duke appeal to my female gaze <laughs> I'm moving swiftly on soon <laughs> <The> <scene. laughs> swiftly, swiftly on. okay, so do you want to nail our question? Yes, what's the question? Or rather, two questions. Mm-hmm. How have feminists created their own media? Mm-hmm. So that's the first. And what role does the internet play in feminist media Ooh, today? Well, that's interesting. These sort of questions come from the work that Claire has done and a book that she has written. Mm-hmm. The title of this book is Feminist Media, Fine, mm. From the Second Wave to the Digital Age. Yep, that makes sense to me. Why? What second wave? Fem- uh, what okay. first wave, second wave? Well, it depends. People have different definitions. Um, but generally, if you're speaking first wave, you're talking like, you know, the OG feminists, suffragettes. Suffragettes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Second wave, you're talking more about typically like the 60s, Uh 60s sort of era onwards when there was a lot more of a push again towards, you know, things like contraception. Yeah. Basic things that we take for granted now. That would sort of be typically classed as second wave, I believe. And then we sort of talk about how there's been all these waves of feminism that come around and then the digital age now is sort of becoming another wave, possibly, because of all the stuff that's happening online towards feminist movements and sort of, um you know, how there's now like feminazis and intersectional, intersectional feminist, where right. we also are talking about like trans issues. Okay. And you know, thinking about how feminism in different places of the world means different things, and how skin colour can also affect feminism and the sort of white feminist ideas that you know are perhaps less important than other ideas. Hmm. And of course, we're looking at media, not feminism mm-hmm. in its entirety. No, just and that's what I find really interesting, is the specific media for that kind of uh, genre is not yeah. the right word. But do you know what I mean? So no, I mean, feminist... I've just written an essay about Fleabag and feminism. So yeah. <laughs> and, and so her her stuff, I would assume, would touch on things like um, feminist magazines mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, the ways in which you would get feminism out to people yeah. in the media. The Feminist Podcast. All sorts Yeah, which I've never studied any form of media studies, you have I did A-level media studies, yes So I think you're going to understand a lot more of the lingo than I will Oh, potentially, I wouldn't put much faith in that Good, well I'm glad I bought you a friend You bought me a friend, Um, but you did also bring me drink, which I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure if this is a present because I'm quite scared of it I'm quite scared of this Because it's not just a gin and tonic. So when I was organising with Claire to come on the podcast, we were talking about what to drink. Yeah. And the fact that Claire wasn't particularly... She's not particularly a gin drinker. Yeah, that's cool. We respect that. Absolutely. But she was willing to try a something. Well done, Claire. like that. And so we have gone with a something that we can easily get from Waitrose... (laughs) Jesus, aren't you middle class today? Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) And it is a can of moth Negroni. I don't order Negronis. They're not a cocktail I go to. If I'm getting cocktail, I tend to go fruity. And this is basically gin vermouth. What is... Amaro? Amaro. Amaro talk forever. What? No idea. But I don't really go for vermouth ever. That's not something I look for. Oh, but the gin is Tarquin's Cornish gin in this. It has. Which I do like. So I'm willing to give it a go. I'm a little bit scared. But seeing as I love going to Italy so much, I feel like I should probably get into them. So we have put this over ice with, with orange an peel. orange How peel. How it's meant to be done. Um, I've never had a Negroni. I've had a sip of one and didn't I've like it. I've never had a cocktail from a can. I've had many cocktails from a can. Oh, Fuck me. Whew. Ah. At first sip, delicious. The aftertaste, disgusting. Oh, that is really dry. Ugh, it's like licorice-y. Ugh. Mm -mm. It is like, it's like like a sweet, but it's got all that licorice, and then it's just left this really dry thing in the back of my throat. I'll probably end up sipping another two a bit, but I I don't... It's a bit Campari-like. Yeah, and and I don't don't like like Campari. Campari.
1: (laughs) So this is it a good is. one, for Russ. <laughs>
0: Delighted that we're not going to end up drinking too much of this. And I wonder if Claire is going to do the same. Let's okay. find out. <laughs> so we have poured and had a taste. And okay. now we want to compare <laughs> whether you're going to have the same reaction to us.
1: Oh, that sounds foreboding.
0: <laughs> Maybe it's just us. Oh yes, yeah,
1: that's, yeah, that's the same face. face. That's, that's the same
0: face. face. <laughs> oh wow, that
1: is that is strong. It's strong. That
0: is something, isn't it? I feel I should have another taste to talk about it, but I really don't want to. <laughs>
1: it's like. Yeah, like, when I bought it, I was like, it's such a little can. Yeah. And now I know why. Yeah, but it's really <laughs> bitter. Yeah. I mean, it's not, like, the worst thing I've ever drank. Though. No, but then I played Ring
0: of Fire at university, so, like, there's, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I was going to, that's quite a low bar in fairness. <laughs> yes. because, like, worst things you've ever drank. Um uh, yeah. yeah. But it's very alcohol heavy, isn't
0: it? It's really it's alcohol heavy. It's got first sip; it's a bit medicinal, like very medicinal, like like medicine for children. Yeah, but But not tasty cowpole because I loved cowpole as a kid. This is not cowpole. No, and it is like you've got the paracetamol. Maybe if you mixed it with enough juices. mm. Put it in a cocktail. Put it in a cocktail. Lots of orange and cranberry. Yeah, and so you can't taste it. <laughs> so it's no longer a negroni. Yeah, that would be, that'd yeah. be wrong with me. Well, it was fun to
1: try. It was <laughs> fun to try. It's very medicinal. Yeah. I feel like um, it's got a bit of a mouthwash kind of. It, it really has. Yes. It. Which I don't think you want from a drink. No, I want no. a drink a to be medicine. enjoyable. No
0: yeah maybe if i was sick this would be helpful yeah maybe yeah i'm not sure we'd ever be used for an advertising campaign for them no no (laughs) but i don't think i'd want to be so that's okay sorry to negronis everywhere (laughs) (laughs) so we are going to try and understand um the feminist media and how they've created their own media and what role the internet plays in feminist media today so where are we going to (laughs) start big question
1: if we're talking about feminism we generally are talking about it with at least three waves possibly four Mm -hmm. depending on who you're talking to (laughs) Uh, important thing to to acknowledge though is that although we might talk about these waves they are kind of metaphors they're Mm -hmm. not like, you know, they're not kind of set in stone, which is why we might talk about three, we might talk about four, mm-hmm. we might even talk about five. But that really depends on who you're talking to. Most people will be aware of the first wave through things like the suffrage movement. Mm-hmm. um, And then the second wave, which is this period in the 70s, really up until the mid 80s, early 90s, which is really um kind of going beyond just asking for basic rights, like the right to vote mm-hmm. and thinking about kind of, Um, more rights for women within everyday life, more rights for women within personal relationships, uh, within the workplace, within politics. Um, And then we have the third wave, which one of the key things that that did, which I think is really interesting in the context of feminist media, is there was this real move towards looking at feminism within popular culture. Mm -hmm. So not just seeing popular culture as being anti-feminist, but seeing how feminists can enjoy and engage with aspects of popular culture that they might not necessarily have have done in the past. So you get that with a lot of the feminist magazines like uh, Bitch and Bust in the US. Mm -hmm. They've really got this focus on kind of like engaging with popular culture and taking feminist things from it in a way that you might not if you just reject it as, anti-feminist and kind of sexist because
0: mm-hmm. that well that was the question I was going to ask immediately mm-hmm. was whether you were talking UK or worldwide
1: yeah so the re- the research that I did looked at the US and the UK mm-hmm. uh, predominantly because the two key texts that I looked at from the 70s started at the same time mm-hmm. they started within months of each other but are very different in terms of their ethos and the way that they produced themselves and kind of audience that they attracted or wanted to attract so I thought that was a really interesting place to start with these two um texts that are very influential so I looked at Spare Rib which is British yeah. mm-hmm. and Miz which is based in was based in the US um and I was just really interested in looking at how the differences between them reflected differences and how you could see feminist media kind of changing uh things and how it also had there was differences in terms of how American feminists approach things versus British feminists. Um, yeah, but then obviously it's important to say that this, it's by necessity that my research is very anglo mm. because I don't speak another language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a much more kind of, you know, someone that has much more language proficiency than me could have looked at France or Italy or Spain and found a whole separate kind of, uh, range of texts but by the you know the fact that I can speak no more French than kind of Shima and <laughs> kind of my Spanish doesn't really go past kind of gracias means that I was kind of necessarily limited in what I could yeah. look at uh, but, but yeah. When
0: you're talking about the waves though you're talking it, at the them happening at the same time pretty much everywhere mm-hmm. that or is it different for different countries?
1: I think I think the ways metaphor is, is quite an angle for metaphor. Right. Like it tends to map onto what happened in the UK and the US pretty well, not so much of the places, which is one of the criticisms of it. Like it's been, it's a heavy, it's a very useful metaphor and people use it a lot because it helps us understand kind of time periods. Mm. But it's also been something that, especially feminists that have looked at kind of what's been happening, for example, in Africa or Asia, Uh, Or Eastern Europe have kind of said well this doesn't necessarily reflect what's happening in our context Mm. so yeah so it's it's an interesting one because I think it it's useful to a point but it's not necessarily it you know it simplifies the the situation quite a lot as well
0: Mm. and so the the sort of the third possibly fourth possibly fifth wave (laughs) Mm. what do we mean when we're talking about those
1: So we're really talking about an engagement with the internet Mm -hmm. to an extent that wasn't there before. Uh, And what comes out of that is two quite interesting things. One is that people from around the world can talk to each other a lot easier Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. they could do previously. And the second is that feminists, especially younger feminists, you know, uh, that have grew up on the internet are able to engage with, they are able to create their own feminist media easier than they've ever been able to do before mm-hmm. because it takes you know a couple of minutes to set up a blog and then you can say whatever you want and mm-hmm. you can really bypass a lot of the kind of establishment roots mm-hmm. within the media um and so we get this kind of peripheration of feminism on the internet and then in social media uh like twitter especially and, mm-hmm. and instagram um which i think has been incredibly important for meaning that young people particular can learn about feminism mm-hmm. without having to without having to be in a classroom yeah I think
0: that's probably where the majority of mine started really was yeah you know, I was that right generation I was on Twitter and Tumblr and all of those things and interacting with it and then it was oh and there's all these books as well and yeah, yeah. and it just kind of carried on
1: <laughs> yeah I yeah Tumblr I think particularly because mm-hmm. I think Tumblr tended to attract a relatively kind of Social justice supportive group of people. So, yeah, and when I was teaching feminism, I really noticed a change in the students from when I first started doing it kind of in 2012 ish, Mm -hmm. 2013 to when I was doing it last year and the year before Mm -hmm. because students were just coming with a lot of the language, a lot of the terminology. Um, so, you know, they knew what intersectionality was yep. without me having to explain it to them. And that wouldn't have been possible even five years ago. Sarah, in the same do way. you know what intersectionality is? Explain it. Oh, but I don't, I'm put on the spot now. Plan. We've got a professional. <laughs> <laughs> so, in kind of intersectionality, in kind of the gist of it is that it's acknowledging the fact that although women are oppressed as women because they are women there is also kind of layers within that. So, for example, a black woman is going to be oppressed both because of her gender, because she's a woman, but also because of her race. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a very specific kind of oppression that's different from the oppression that a white woman might face because of her gender and different from the oppression that a black man might face because of his race. And it was it was started by a, a legal scholar called Kimberly Crenshaw, and she was using it. Uh, so although we use it quite theoretically now, we often use it, kind of to discuss everyday life she was using it in the context of of actual civil cases again employment cases essentially mm. that black uh women workers had brought against uh, the company they were working for to basically say we're not being treated fairly and that is because of both our gender and our race because often they were finding that they couldn't make a case based on gender because mm. white women were being treated. Kind of preferentially, so they couldn't say that it was because of their gender, and they couldn't treat treat they couldn't take it based on race because their black male colleagues yeah. were not being treated in the same way either, mm-hmm. so there was something that really had to acknowledge the very specific ways that there's black women were being trapped and discriminated against, and that's kind of where it comes from mm-hmm. um but Although Crenshaw talks about it a lot and she kind of coined the term as we understand it today. Um, feminists like audrey Lorde, so she talks about kind of there's no such you know there's no such thing as a single issue um uh, people don't live single issue lives mm. so we can't think of things as kind of single issues mm. um so it's and a lot of it comes from black feminism yeah. like that's kind of the key to it um and a lot of it is explicitly a reaction to kind of the fact that a lot of white feminists in the 70s and 80s and in particular mm-hmm. would talk about women as this kind of overall category but wouldn't acknowledge didn 't think to acknowledge the fact that
0: mm-hmm.
1: you will be treated differently mm. also because of your race mm. and your class mm. and your sexuality, and that needs to be acknowledged so you know we can although we can talk about women as a as a collective term, women are obviously different as well mm-hmm. um, yeah that 's kind of where it came from
0: and so is that where the waves get more difficult to sort of start to count on things because the first wave was an obvious movement that was a, a sort of collective women vote it was really easy to mm-hmm. define and then as we get more the arguments yeah. get more nuanced and so it's like is it a wave is it a ripple is it just a continuation <laughs> of the first
1: one you know yeah yeah it does beca- it becomes much harder because and I think this is another important thing that I think often for the ease of simplicity we often don't necessarily make we, we don't make enough of this than we maybe should, is that we often talk about feminists as if we all believe the same things. Mm. But there are huge kind of schisms and conflicts mm. within feminists' kind of beliefs. And, and so we really need to think of feminism as plur- plural movement. We need mm. to think of feminisms rather than feminism. Uh, and yeah, and then it, so it becomes much more difficult because what I might be kind of thinking is key feminist issues, uh, another feminist would say the opposite, mm. uh, but we, we we were both identified as feminists. Whereas again with the suffrage movement, that's much more, you know, it's very clear what what they wanted. They wanted to vote, yeah. like, right? And you know, whereas it's with a lot of issues now, especially you know, kind of in relation to things like sex work and um, I suppose trans rights as well. There's been some trans rights as well. There, yeah. It's really you know, it's very you have people who would both identify strongly as feminists who have completely different perspectives Mm -hmm. on the issue.
0: Me and J.K. Rowling have very different views in our feminism. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And
1: I think, you know, and I think the kind of, the discussion around kind of uh, trans rights is is a really important one for that Mm -hmm. because often it has started to happen now increasingly that the discussion is kind of almost setting up this kind of, you know, you'll often see, well, feminists are concerned about this. Mm. And, you, you know, feminists concerns concerned about kind of, you know, single-sex spaces or whatever. And I think that's really worrying, firstly, mm. because not all feminists are. Like, I'm definitely not. <laughs> like, you know, I think that trans women are women mm. and deserve the right to kind of feel safe and to have access to um, the spaces that all women have. And secondly, it also sets up this idea that trans people can't also be feminists, Mm -hmm, which again is completely Mm -hmm. incorrect. Like there are a lot of, you know, trans feminists and, and, and we, you know, there are much more similarities between ourselves and there are differences. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, yeah, I I think there is a risk that people believe that all feminists think the same thing. And I think that that's always been the case. I don't think that's a new Mm -hmm. kind of phenomenon. I think it's kind of amplified now, especially on social media, Because you're kind of seeing what would have happened behind closed doors. So people have been having these discussions, but you're not necessarily having them on Twitter where everyone can see see them. You know, so I think that's maybe one of the kind of the differences. Yeah. And I suppose when you're talking about the sort of first or second wave, you're, talking
0: about publications that you would then align yourself with mm-hmm. yeah and but even so then, then even in the first waves there were two sort of groups there were there the were. ones who were like yes. we're gonna be yeah, violent absolutely. and there were the ones who weren't <laughs> yeah yeah but you could more clearly align with those I suppose
1: yeah. that now with social media yeah absolutely it's really complicated it's because often so in a British context like I think a lot of this complication is around kind of trans rights at the minute mm-hmm. because you will often get you know you will get people that self-identify as feminists essentially telling each other that they're not feminists yeah like I had a Twitter post I think it was I can't remember it there's been so many kind of reasons that I would have posted something like this but I think it was around uh something or other that had been in the press and I think I said something that was essentially like feminists are not all the same like we believe different things like I really don't want kind of trans-exclusionary you know, feminists kind of mm-hmm. think that they're speaking for me because they're not and just through the kind of the you know the magic of the algorithm it ended up having like I think about three or four hundred likes and it got you know lots of retweets mm-hmm. and and I had to I, I remember having a woman like reply calling me a men's rights activist and I was like <laughs> oh god I was sake. like a PhD in feminist <laughs> media studies <laughs> and like i can laugh about it because like i know that kind of i like, am a million miles away from that yeah but i can also see how it kind of if i didn't have that you know mm-hmm. if they were saying that to anyone else i could see how because, they yeah. could have really took that to heart
0: okay so we're talking about the media and how it's changed them yeah. from that second wave to this digital age mm-hmm. um and i can imagine that it's just been a huge massive
1: change (laughs) yeah so i think one of the big changes that we see is what we might call the mainstream mainstreaming of feminism so in the 70s and the 80s when these feminist publications were produced one of the main reasons that they existed was because the things that these texts were talking about were not being talked about anywhere else Mm -hmm. you were not having these conversations in other places you just weren't um Whereas now I think it's it's become much more socially acceptable to describe yourself as a feminist. Mm -hmm. So we can all think about Beyoncé, the 2014 VMA Awards, where she kind of stood kind of in front of a big massive kind of light, you know, LED with feminist on it, and she quotes kind of feminist kind of work in her songs. Um so so I think part of it comes from that. So you are much more likely to see feminism being discussed positively in Mm -hmm. kind of places that you wouldn't have necessarily seen that kind of even 10 or 15 years Mm ago um but this is also happening at the same time that we also get this kind of sense that feminism is no longer needed Mm -hmm. so we get this discourse of kind of like you know, women have got everything they want is so why do we need feminism? So we get this oh, interesting yeah. kind of
0: contrast. And, and we bought the t shirts that says we're a feminist. That was made in the sweatshop yeah. somewhere else Same. in the world by underpaid and exploited yeah.
1: workers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Mainly yeah. women. Yeah. yeah. Um and yeah. so yeah, we've got the t shirt, we agree. There we go, job done.
1: It's a really difficult line, I think, to balance. So like there's a couple of um people that have wrote about this quite recently. So there's a um an academic called Sarah benne that wrote book called Empowered, and she talks about this in terms of this kind of increased visibility of feminism. So feminism is everywhere, mm. but actually women still don't have a lot of power. Mm. And she talks about this in relation to the 2016 election in the US, mm. because that in some ways just kind of exemplifies this. So you get this yeah. kind of, especially in the figure of Hillary Clinton, often described as kind of this kind of strong, kind of girl boss kind of figure, but yet... She was still beaten by a man who, you know, was being accused of multiple kind of Mm -hmm. sexual assaults and had been recorded saying horrible things about women. And that didn't seem to matter enough to sway the result of the election. So we get that kind of weird, you know, this kind of, yeah, we can call ourselves feminists, but that doesn't necessarily lead to an increase in rights. Mm -hmm. And it's a tricky one because, on the one hand, you could be like, well, It's good that more people know what feminism is and more people are calling themselves feminists. Mm. But there is also the question of how much that actually changes things if the status quo doesn't change along with it. Mm -hmm. I'm just
0: not going to get angry. I'm not going to shit talk Donald Trump today. I'm going to be really good and I'm going to hold it in. I'm going to hold it in. I was thinking about the difference between that second wave as you said and the aligning Mm -hmm. with those having definite media that's talking about the issues um and as you said now there's that there's so much of it out there that it's become i think as soon as you stumble upon it i don't know i suppose it's a bit like um uh, going in buying a car that you know if it's if it's the first one out and nobody's ever seen mm-hmm. it before then everyone's going to really pay attention to it whenever they see it whereas when there have been a few thousand of them produced and they're all on the roads people aren't noticing them anymore is that the kind of effect that's happening within the media as well
1: I think to a certain extent yeah I think part of it is to do with kind of the amount of autonomy you have Mm -hmm. as a feminist media producer if you're doing it yourself. Yeah. So if you are, you know, if you're producing everything, if you're kind of putting it out there every month, you have a lot of power to decide what goes in, what stays out. Um, Whereas if it's within texts that are not necessarily feminist per se you might have a really great essay about feminism but you are producing that within the context of a kind of a capitalist product which is not necessarily feminist so like I use the example in my book of Teen Vogue so Teen Vogue in around 2016 became incredibly political like so there was a writer called Lauren Duke that was writing for them and she was writing these kind of incredibly articulate kind of takedowns of the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. And the language that was used within the magazine became increasingly kind of aware of of social justice issues and feminism. And that's brilliant. That's really great to see. But it's also still a magazine that was produced by Condé Nast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this strange kind of difficulty of, do you say, well, it's good that it's there? Or do you say, you know, it's almost purity politics of kind of, mm-hmm. we're only going to do it if if we can keep it kind of as ideologically how we want it is possible or do we want lots of people to read it um so yes i think some of it's to do with that definitely and i think part of it is to do with the industry more widely because a lot of the magazines that were around back then wouldn't survive today because no one buys magazines yeah
0: i mean that's exactly what i was going to say we've talked a lot about sort of print media and you know social media but also, things like TV and film, do you think we're seeing a sort yeah. of rise of feminist stuff or even female gays and stuff in those as well?
1: I think we are. I think it's incredibly slow. Yes. Um, I think we often, you know, so obviously we had the Oscars and we had the f- only the second yeah. ever woman yeah. to win for Best Director. Uh, the first woman of colour to win for Best Director. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Normal Land obviously won Best Picture as well. But it's very clear that when that happens, that is, we are talking about that happening Mm. because it happens so Mm. so seldom that we kind of go. So I think there is a risk that we get this increase and then we kind of go back to default, Mm -hmm. and and it kind of, you know, I think I've heard people say, you know, the risk is that if we think of feminism and women's media as this kind of trend, Mm. as soon as it becomes less kind of trendy and yeah. it's maybe not quite as popular it's not going to make as much money yeah. it will kind of go away again and obviously that's not really making a change mm. which I think comes down to the crux of it is how much do you want to work with the mainstream because the mainstream essentially you know it's not there for you like it's it's there to make money and if you're making money for them then that's brilliant and the t-shirts are a good example of that so like they make lots of money like you could buy a dr t-shirt with feminist on it like seven hundred dollars like it makes sense (laughs) for dr to kind of do that for now because it's making them money Mm -hmm. but if suddenly that's not the case anymore then or if or if the feminist starts saying well actually we don't think that you should exist as a company because we shouldn't be paying 700 pounds for a t-shirt then you know if then it becomes harder to kind of that that kind of coexistence becomes harder and there is a a possibility that you don't really get to do as much as you could because you Mm -hmm. you know you're kind of working with constraints that are already set out for you which is one of the key kind of one of the key issues within even the second wave between what we might think as kind of liberal feminists who yeah. were all about kind of equality within existing structures versus radical and socialist feminists who were like, we don't think the structure should exist. Mm-hmm. And we we can only go so far if we're working within the structures that have been given to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and Audre Lorde, again, who is kind of like, you know, she a brilliant writer because she writes about these things so clearly, she talks about this. You know, the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. Mm-hmm. This idea that you, you know, we have to radically think, rethink what society looks like if we're going to have real change. Mm-hmm. We can only take baby steps if we're doing it within mm-hmm. the structures that have been kind of given to us. But that's really hard.
0: Yeah, really hard. Can we go back to that second wave to understand mm-hmm. what what were the publications? Because I've heard of spare rib, but mm-hmm. that's about as far as it goes. I've heard of spare rib. Um, so what what was being written by who? Who was reading them? How were they being produced? Because they were were they being published by? Um, other companies that they wouldn't want to be aligned to. You know, tell us about it. What was that second one? Yeah,
1: so we had Spare Rib in. There was lots and lots, but I focused on two, so I know a lot about the two that I looked at, and much less about the others. So Spare Rib was British based. It was started by two women, Rose Boycott and Marsha Rowe and they had been working in the underground press in the UK in the seventies, mm-hmm. and they found that although the publications that we were working for were incredibly kind of progressive in lots of different ways. In terms of the way they track women, they were not progressive at all. Yes. So women were doing a lot of the kind of, you know, making the tea, doing the photocopy <laughs> and all of the things that yeah. are kind of typically coded as kind of women's jobs. So they started Spare Rib uh, and it lasted for about 20 years. It ended in 1993. Right. Um, and one of the key differences between Spare Rib and other publications is that from about a year in, they ran as a collective, so they didn't have an editor-in-chief at the top. They had a group of women that worked collectively to run mm. the magazine. Um, but it was, and it was something you could buy in kind of like news agents. Like it wasn't just something that you were in mm. special bookshops or whatever. But it was, it was quite, if you ever see copies of it, it's quite kind of low tech. It's mm-hmm. not particularly glossy. Mm-hmm. In terms of advertisements, they had a very clear kind of, policy that they would only have advertisements for kind of things that they felt mm-hmm. were appropriate mm-hmm. so you know not for kind of high fashion or kind of that you know not for makeup or all of the things again that would be targeted towards women uh, consumers the flip side of that is that they really struggled financially yeah. and which yes. that's part of the reason that they ended is because they just ran out of money because it, it became increasingly difficult yeah. to mm-hmm. to kind of run especially in the 80s um and then in the US, I looked at a magazine called Ms., uh, which was founded by uh, a woman called Gloria Steinem, who's kind of quite a well-known feminist. Uh, she's in her eighties now, uh, so she was in her kind of thirties and the seventies, uh, and she was a much more mainstream writer. So she'd written before she started Ms. She'd written an expose. She'd gone into cover as a Playboy bunny. Mm-hmm. Uh, And she'd written written this book basically about her experiences and the kind of sexism and the kind of, you know, the leaviness that you would expect out Mm -hmm. of being a Mm playboy bunny. Um, And so but she'd written in lots of different places and in kind of quite well-known publications, so not in kind of niche or kind of alternative Mm -hmm. uh, kind of magazines or newspapers.
0: Uh, But though the magazine... um... It's my TV watching Miss America. Gosh, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. is that that's the magazine that you were talking about with the, the people that were involved in that campaign as well.
1: Yeah, so Miss America obviously is about kind of the equal rights amendment. Yeah, and Miss was re- Miss spent a lot of time talking about that, mm-hmm. trying desperately to get it passed. And Phyllis Schlafly, who was obviously the kind of the antagonist yeah. of mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. America. Uh, she was kind of the figure that they were trying to kind of they were they were quite trying to defeat. Uh, so yeah, so, so Steinem was heavily involved in those campaigns, um, but Mears was produced originally by um, Time Warner, uh, which obviously is not a kind of a tiny little publication, <laughs> and they they wanted a big audience essentially. They yeah. wanted to reach, and obviously the differences that America's a massive country so you've really got to think about how you're going to distribute it to everyone and she explicitly didn't want it to be a magazine that was read just by people that were in the know she wanted to be read by everyone but you know that also has its limitations in terms of you know advertisers and things like that
0: yeah and that is the the hard thing isn't it because even today you know if you want to get out to the widest audience then you're probably having to align yourself or be on the platforms that you wouldn't necessarily want to be yeah on or aligned with mm-hmm.
1: yeah absolutely and it's a very difficult you know and it's a tricky thing so with miz they often were advertising things that you know seem to be in kind of direct opposition to some of the editorial content mm-hmm. so they had you know advertisements for like makeup which were very much about kind of you know, you're working really long hours, but you still look your best. Mm. And one of the arguments is that leaves a lot of women behind. Mm. It leaves behind poorer women. It leaves Definitely. behind kind of, you know, women of colour who who don't necessarily fit into those mm. stereotypes. So that was always the challenge, really. But then eventually they, um, th- they went through a couple of rounds of being sold and bought by different people. Mm. Um, and then eventually the Feminist Majority Foundation uh, bought the magazine and Mm. so it still exists today and it's not for profit so they have much more freedom in terms of what they can produce Mm. so it's an interesting it's a weird kind of thing that they spent a long time trying to kind of exist in the mainstream but what's kept their longevity is the fact that they're now owned by a non-profit Mm. and that means that they don't have to worry quite so much about things like advertising revenue Yeah, yeah
0: yeah Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the internet, how has the internet changed everything?
1: So you get a lot of blogs. Um, so there's blogs that have started off quite small and then have really ballooned, and it's something much bigger. So things like the Everyday Sexism Project yeah. is a good example. I love that. So that was obviously something that was started by Laura Bates that was just essentially... I've got the book you can borrow if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was essentially her just saying, tell me what's happened. This something really crappy has happened to me mm-hmm. tell me what's happened to you and then sh- you know and it's a way to kind of share it and that's obviously now become much bigger than that uh you also have kind of um sites like Galdom, which mm-hmm. is run by uh women and non-binary uh women of color and again that is a way to kind of get alternative voices out there that maybe yeah. wouldn't exist um and then you also have you know if we look at kind of recent events with kind of things like reclaim the streets, mm, yeah, mm. a lot of that kind of circulates through social media in particular mm-hmm. and through kind of people kind of, you know, reaching out to each other.
0: Yeah. And things like Jamila Jamil's I Way movement that sort of started as a thing yeah, on Instagram exactly. and then yeah. end up. Yeah. I think it was based off a post she saw of the Kardashians that gave the weight of each of the member of the Kardashians' family.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: and she said, well, why does it matter about that? Yeah. So she started this I weigh thing that's basically saying, you know, I weigh my undergraduate degree, I weigh. Uh, and it's like all the things that you, that you think weigh. matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so it just sort of took off with nice. loads of people doing it.
1: Yeah, but then again, that's another example of incredibly positive thing but also something that relies on yeah. the celebrity power of the person that Absolutely. started it. Because yeah. if it was me that had started it, not, not Jamin, no, it. yeah, yeah, wouldn't have took off in quite the same way. So there is these really interesting tensions between mm-hmm. the power of celebrity and kind of influence versus
0: yeah,
1: how that kind of maybe drowns out other people's voices. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And must then be hard to get, Um, an audience then as well if you haven't got that fame behind and um you're not then aligning yourself to the bigger uh media etc then you can be you can be out there in the world of the internet saying amazing things but nobody would be noticing at all
1: yeah absolutely and I think this is another issue with um the increased use of the internet is that we often think of the internet as this very egalitarian place where everything is kind of equal. Mm-hmm. And if you post something, you have just as much chance of it becoming viral so as the next It's so not person. true. Well, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's so much evidence that that's not the case. So there's a, an academic in the US called Safia Noble. She wrote a book called Algorithms of Oppression. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the fact that for, you know, the, the kind of algorithms that rule a lot of our lives now are not neutral. Mm-hmm. Like they have kind of, you know, they have their own bias because they're created by people who have their own biases. Mm, mm. And we often talk about the benefits of social media, but we also need to consider the fact that social media is essentially run by billion dollar companies. (laughs) Yeah, So there is this kind of, there's this difficulty. So, you know, you can have a massive impact on Twitter or Instagram, but you're also still lining the pockets of kind of Mark Zuckerberg or kind of Jack Dorsey, and they're often doing things that we wouldn't necessarily want them to be doing. Yeah. But if we're not on those platforms, then we don't get our voice heard. Mm-hmm. then it, yeah, it's really difficult. Mm. It makes me think
0: of mm. The Good Place, you know, how mm-hmm. they to talk about the point system, yeah, how yeah. even if you're trying to do something good, yeah, yeah, you end up causing a negative because, you know, you're mm. trying to do a good thing by talking about these feminist ideas and then you're like, oh, but I'm still doing it on Twitter, so I'm still going to end up in the bad place
1: yeah (laughs) I remember writing the end of my book and just being like I can't come up with something that's completely positive because it's just so complicated um and but I also think that's kind of important as well that it's there isn't any easy answers like Mm. because you know it comes back to that idea that we can't Pinpoint something as well. This is definitely feminist, yeah. or this is definitely not feminist. Yeah, yeah. Because often it's just so blurry and so kind of nuanced. Yeah.
0: So yeah, as you were saying about coming to that end of the book, you know, that you the book you wrote you finished recently. Yeah. So are there are there current trends, current things that are going on, or things that you're looking out with interest and thinking, I wonder how that's going to pan out in the future
1: yeah definitely I think I'm really interested in a lot of the work that groups like Sisters Uncut are doing mm-hmm. so can
0: you just explain a little bit about what they're doing
1: so Sisters Uncut are an organization they're not new at all they've been around for a good few years they do a lot of work uh, in London a lot of work which is around kind of anti gentrification and um and around the time of... So when the vigil was set up uh, mm-hmm. by reclaiming these, seat, uh, these streets, and obviously that was cancelled because of coronavirus yeah. restrictions, mm-hmm. And they'd been told by the police that they wouldn't, you know, that, they, that the police wouldn't give permission for it to go ahead. Yeah. And then they basically said, oh, well, we're not going to do it uh, then. And Sisters Cook kind of stepped into the breach and said, well, we're still going to go. Yeah. To yeah. The, we're still going to do it because, you know yeah because it felt so important i think yeah Yeah. uh which i thought was a really kind of a clear example of this kind of very differing ways in which you can think you can change things Mm -hmm. so we have this kind of version which is about kind of making changes but also working with existing systems Mm -hmm. versus a group which said you know rejected that outright and said you know we don't care if you told us we can't go, mm. we're not going to listen to you because mm. essentially you are part of the problem. Mm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so there's a very interest, and I, I think that I would be interested to see how that develops and how that is again mediated. Mm. And also thinking about how people have changed the way that they consume media. So yeah. like, I'm really interested in TikTok because yes. again, like so there's much more kind of, Backwards and forwards between people, and people can make videos and then respond to them, and you don't have to be on TV. You don't have to get a a TV deal to kind of be seen by millions of people. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is that the algorithm and the the kind of the company can basically just take you off yeah really easily Um, and then the balance as
0: well will be skewed because of the algorithm the Mm -hmm. flip
1: side is that i'll also be interested in whether we'll see a move away from the use of just the internet for that and whether we'll see especially once you Mm -hmm. know potentially restrictions are eased we see a move back onto kind of the streets as a kind of a, a space for protest um where the internet will be important, but it will be more important for documenting what's happening than for being what's Mm. happening cool
0: (laughs) i am gonna go and have a look at spare rib articles Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go and have a look at various things that you've mentioned but my sieve like brain will then have to probably (laughs) re-listen and then go right that was the title put it in google i think i'm just gonna have to go buy a lot more books loads yeah, exactly. more books what a shame oh no more books terrible <laughs> <laughs> so more books to read more places to go and some protests to be had excellent that's a nice to-do list thank you so much for yeah. giving it to us there
1: you're very welcome
0: there we go there we go feminist media feminist for you media for me. What have so, you learned? I want to know what you've learned today. Okay, so I have learned that um, whilst I can't pull things out of my brain, some of them are there. Some of them are there. So, like, I remember watching Miss America. Yeah, and I remember you talking to and, me about it. it, it was fabulous. Yeah. And what I liked about it was some of the insights into the magazine. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were talking about Miss and my my brain is rattling going, hello, Hello, there's a little thing in here somewhere. Um... And yeah, so being able to make those connections, mm-hmm. that is really good. See, I knew about Spare Rib. I'd looked at it a little bit in my nonfiction class, but I didn't know about the American one. And I didn't know that it was still running, which is really, really cool. Absolutely. And I only knew about Spare Rib as in it was a feminist media that yeah. was was then. And I didn't realise it had gone on for quite as long. Yeah. I thought it was, you know, that it was just in the 60s, 70s mm-hmm. and finished then. So what else have I learned? I learnt... That you have, I think, like with so many things, you've got this clarity of something Mm -hmm. like the first suffragette movement, which is very much a definite Mm. something that is being uh, campaigned for. I think that's something that's come about, the whole nuance thing, because the fact we're able to talk to people all over the world now, it's just... Totally. And I think it's a collective movement for everything, Mm -hmm. you know, because because things have taken so long. What I think I've learned is that it's like buses and (laughs) because one hasn't come along, they've all bunched up. And so now we have just got so much being communicated about all sorts of different Mm -hmm. things because all these bosses have come at once. And if we go back to one of the previous episodes that we did um, quite a few weeks, a few weeks ago um, on getting women into STEM, you know, again, it's similar kinds of things that uh, it's the nuances. um, And when we go back to um, periods Mm -hmm. um, and again, the nuances of being able to just give everyone the voice and Mm -hmm. everyone, everything intersectional feminism. Um, So I, yeah, I learned a ton. And I think the complexity of media that I yeah. learned about as well. Yeah. You know, suffragette movement, will print off leaflets, we'll mm-hmm, talk mm-hmm. to people, we'll create this thing. Then you've got um, magazines and who do you align yourself with and the print media yeah. and that kind of thing. Now, mm-hmm. it, there's just so much yeah. and social media playing such a big,
1: such a massive, yeah, yeah.
0: big deal. Yeah. But how difficult that is yeah, because we're at the mercy of algorithms. Mm-hmm. And cancel culture.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's what I learned. Nice. I also learned I don't like Negroni. I hate Negronis. Really don't like Sorry. It. Not going to order Disgusting. a Negroni. It's probably nothing against moth and their Negroni. No, I'm sure moth does a great Negroni. I just don't like Negronis. No. But if, you know, if you like something medicinal and dry and yeah. Horrid. I'm not going to make any weird. jokes. <laughs> gonna move on from that. Did you learn anything more? Because you know, this was the present for you. It was present for me. I enjoyed talking about it. And I suppose it was, I learned things, little things, sort of nuanced and facts and tidbits. But I think overarching, it was stuff I sort of was aware of, but maybe couldn't articulate as well. Because yeah. I've been on social media, basically, my entire life. I I've, I've grown up as that generation. Yeah. And I've, I think I must've been about 13 when I first got a Tumblr blog and went feminism. Yeah. yeah. And I sort of have seen the, the rise in it online and the rise of always nuanced issues and, you know, talking about white feminism versus intersexuality and all these kind of stuff. So I think it was stuff I was aware of, but not in as much detail and not able to articulate because mm. I'm not particularly brilliant at articulating ideas because either I get too angry and I cry mm. or I just don't have the words and then I cry or I just cry. Mm. Yeah. Which is a common one. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm crying. Let's not do some of that. I'm hair. okay today. I'm all right. I finished my deadline. I've got a haircut. Living my best life. Excellent. I will also enjoy listening back to this mm. in however long Yeah. to then go, <laughs> have we gone all full circle again? You'll be listening back going, oh, we're going to a protest next week. Yeah. yeah, you can yeah. protest with me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah! When I'm completely grey as well. I'd like, well, no, I would protest now. But what I also like the idea of being, of being a protesting granny, Fez, well. would you wear your DM style boots? Yeah, yeah always. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah, we could go together. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. Nice. Off to a protest. Off to throw the Negroni yeah, down do. yeah. the sink. I'm going to protest Negronis. If you enjoyed this episode, listen to more. We've got tons. (laughs) Got loads. And if you like them, really, really like them, you could always leave us a review because apparently they're quite helpful. You can also subscribe. You can. And then you don't even need to go and find us. We just appear. Every single week. Yeah. We are on Twitter at Topic Gin. And on Instagram, Topic Gin. Yay! (laughs) Join us next week for another Gin And another topic.